Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Imagine for a moment, you're a big leaguer. You get the call. You arrive at the stadium in the middle of the game. The clubhouse manager plays a joke on you and leads you to the visitor's bullpen, and they let you have it. Nice joke. You finally get to your bullpen, and the coach hands you the ball and says, warm up, you're going in. Moments later, you trot out to the mound. Your new skipper hands you the ball, calls you, by the wrong name and tells you to get out of the jam. That's the type of career Skip Lockwood had. And next on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Skip Lockwood will be here to tell us that story and more. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Today, I think a real treat. Former Major League closer Skip Lockwood will join us for a wonderful conversation about his career. Now, Skip was a journeyman reliever spending most of his time with the New York Mets. For me, I am taking this time to label Lockwood as a hero. After all, I'm a Mets fan. And back in the 70s, as a kid, I never missed a game. And Lockwood was the man out of the pen, coming on to save games for the likes of Seaver, Kuzman, and Matlack. Yes, in my eyes at that time, Lockwood was a hero, and to me, that makes him more than worthy for being my guest today. And Skip also wrote a terrific book filled with great anecdotes, insight, and more. Insight Pitch, My Life as a Major League Closer, published by the good folks at Sports Publishing, an imprint of Sky House Publishing. If you're looking for some light and fun reading, this is definitely for you. Skip was as cocky as they came. Just finishing up his senior year in high school, he had team officials from five major league clubs come to his home and try to get him to sign on the dotted line to play for them. Ultimately, he picked Charlie Finley and the then Kansas City A's. And Skip played real hardball with the team's general manager at that time, Pat Friday. It's quite the story. Wait till you hear what he did. Before we get into all of it, though, just a few reminders. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook by looking for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page. Follow on Twitter at Sports F Heroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or follow on the web at SportsFH.com. There, I have more information on each of my guests more info on the stars I talk about, 
and it's a great portal for you to connect with me for suggestions or comments about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Again, that's sportsfh.com. As always, please, if you have the time, write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can write reviews. And thanks for listening. Over the course of his career, Skip Lockwood played for the Kansas City A's, Seattle Pilots, Milwaukee Brewers, the California Angels, New York Mets, and the Boston Red Sox. His best days came with the Mets, where he spent parts of five seasons going 24-36 and with 65 saves and a 2.76 ERA. He struck out almost one batter per inning, 368 strikeouts and 379.2 innings pitched. He was the stopper, the closer that the Mets needed. His road to the Mets was quite the journey. And we're going to talk about a lot of it now. So, now, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I am very pleased to bring you Skip Lockwood. Skip, thanks for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. As a huge New York Mets fan, I am thrilled to welcome you here. Warren, thanks for being, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, you, you're, you're kind to, uh, to want to interview me. Well, um, I, I, yeah, I, I remember watching you, uh, walk out to the mound at Shea stadium and shutting the door on a couple of opponents. That's for sure. We enjoyed New York. Um, we lived there for five years and we lived a little bit. We had a, a one year in the city and then a couple of years in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I just enjoyed being in New York. I got a chance to go back to New York this year and see City Field and and be part of, you know, revitalized enthusiasm mm-hmm. that that the Mets had this last year and it felt great. You know, it really felt like I was back in the in the middle of the pennant race myself. That's awesome. That's awesome. Exciting. Hey, you know, I want to start our show with this. You were originally drafted to be a third baseman by the Kansas City A's. However, at some point, they convinced you to convert to a pitcher. And we're going to get into all of that a little bit later on. But I wanted to start with this. Not only were you asked to convert to a pitcher, you were later asked to become a reliever. And I've always been curious to know if you start off as a starting pitcher and are then sent to the bullpen, what is the mental effect on you? And I'm sure it's different for everyone, but still, in many cases, it has to be some sort of a blow to your, I guess, to your ego while I'm a starting pitcher and now they're sending me to the bullpen, unless maybe you're being sent there to be the closer. Can you talk about that a little bit? How how going from starting pitcher to reliever, um, the mental aspect of that? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, you're right. I I had to I had to convert to pitching. Um, I was an infielder for a while. Played in the major leagues as an infielder, third baseman, the A's, <clears throat> and was traded to Seattle. And 
I was in the middle of being converting from being an infielder to a pitcher <clears throat> when I got to spring training in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Rollins was the third baseman, if you remember Rich Rollins. Mm-hmm. And um, so the way I found out that I wasn't an infielder anymore was I was, you know, you get you have a, a meeting in the first day of spring training and everybody gets dressed and you run out in the field and you do calisthenics and whatever it is you do. And I ran on into the infield and started to field ground balls next to Rich Rollins. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> For everything I knew, I was a, an infielder still. And uh, Sal Magley, who's a pitching coach, mm-hmm. looked at me and then he, he looked at his chart that he had in his, he had his clipboard. And then he asked somebody else to come over, one of the other coaches, and they had like a conference on the sidelines. And finally, he he looked up and he said, Lockwood, you're a pitcher. Get out of the outfield <laughs> with the rest of the pitchers. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm still shagging ground balls. And so I said to Rich Rollins, I said, Rich, I'm a pitcher, man. The third base is all yours. <laughs> wow. I was completely nuts. <laughs> partially true. Um, so making the conversion to pitching was a necessity. <clears throat> I didn't, I wasn't hitting very well. Um, my vision was never that good anyway. And I had trouble with um, the curveball as, as a lot of young hitters do. And mm-hmm. I could, if I knew a fastball was coming and I, I was somewhere around home plate, I could play a bat on it. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the pros, it's different than it is in, in high school. Sure. I had trouble. I didn't hit for power. Mm-hmm. It was lucky that Charlie Finley decided to make a conversion of me rather than let me go, which probably mm-hmm. could have done very easily. But I, I learned to wind up, and I was starting to learn a, a little breaking ball. But the thing that, that was always true, Warren, was I could always throw the ball hard. I had a good arm. It was resilient. Um, I could throw every day. I, I could throw from the outfield. I certainly could throw from the pitcher's mound. And now, whether or not I could locate home plate, that was <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 it's interesting. I could, I could get it up there, you know, mid mid to high nineties, maybe even better than that. Wow! And all I had to do was try to find home plate. Hmm. I had to throttle back, you know, quite a bit. I couldn't throw it as hard as I wanted. In order to be able to to pitch, I had to throttle back to you know eighty five, ninety percent. Mm-hmm. He had to add a breaking ball. So the hardest for me was trying to be a pitcher um, seven days a week. And yeah, yeah Skip, I wanted to ask you about that because because you you when they converted you to a pitcher, you actually started off as a starting pitcher, and then they moved you to the pen as a reliever. And there's got to be a different mentality in that, right? A, a, a starting pitcher approaches the game much differently than a than a relief pitcher, right? 
you know, everybody belongs to the track team, but there's sprinters and there's distance runners. And they all, we all kind of look alike, but clearly there's, there's different sets of skills. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, if you're a starting pitcher, you're more of a distance runner. You know, you got to pace yourself. You, you got to be able to pitch, you know, 100 innings. Um, you got to be able to pitch every three or four days. You got to cope with yourself. Mm-hmm. The three days in between starts, you can't get too angry. You can't get too hyped. And it's, for me, the waiting was one of the big things. And I was pitching in Milwaukee, and, and I, I, I didn't have a very good record. I was pitching okay, but the team was was pretty bad. So I think the first year I was like five and twelve or something. Like that. <laughs> so it's hard to to be, you know, starting pitcher if you're not going to pitch all week and you got to wait till Saturday. And here it is Wednesday and Thursday. I wanted to play. I, I it was really the waiting was the hardest part about being a starting pitcher to try to channel you know, the energy. And I used to get so amped, ready to go out there and, and play. I was trying so hard and I wanted to throw it so hard and and I knew I could, but I couldn't find a plate with it. So the whole thing was kind of an exercise in, in futility. And I pitched five years, <clears throat> six years as a starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. Hockey and uh, Seattle and uh, with the A's and, and not the A's, the Anaheim Angels. <clears throat> you know, it's okay. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't great. It wasn't all star material. So, and then I I got sent to the minor leagues. There's a funny story in the book if you read it about me getting sent to AAA. Um, I I really thought it was the end of my life, my baseball life anyway. You know, here I was, you know, 30, 31. Mm-hmm. I've got to go to AAA for the third time, <clears throat> and I didn't know what to do. So I was playing catch in the outfield with a little left-handed pitcher that ended up being the pitching coach for the for the uh, Atlanta. His name was Leo Mazzoni. Sure. Leo was a little lefty, and, and he and I were both on AAA. Uh, Tucson, Tucson Toros, hot, hot, hot man. What is hot? <laughs> and we're playing catching the outfield, and he, he said to me, "Hey man," he said, "Have you ever tried this?" And what he did with it, with his glove hand, is he hinged, he hinged his glove. You know how sometimes you you can throw a ball and you can like hinge your glove a little bit. Sure. I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Try, try this," and he did it again. And showed me. Uh, with my glove hand to to make like a forward hinging motion with it. Mm-hmm. I never never heard of this before. And um, what it did is immediately gave me another twelve to eighteen inches on my fastball. And oh. so it's real good fastball that I had trouble getting over the plate. And it gave me an unhittable fastball. Hmm. So in the minor leagues and in, in AAA with Tucson, <clears throat> I couldn't be hit. It was it was impossible to catch up to it. 
Right, you were the pitcher of the month or something like that at one point, or yeah. you had the 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 oh, yeah. most wins or strikeouts or something. You were pitcher of the month in the PCL. Yeah, the catcher couldn't catch it. Um, it was it was really good. It was it was good stuff. But <clears throat> the only the only thing I was doing differently was was hinging that glove hand. Obviously, there was something happening to the ball as well, but the. The thing I felt was the, the hinging of the glove. <clears throat> so when I got to the big leagues, <clears throat> I was a, a reliever. And at the time, Kyle McGraw had been traded to the Phillies and the Mets needed a reliever. Um, Bob Apodaca was doing a little bit of it. Kenny Sanders came on in the middle of the year. He was doing a little bit of it. But they didn't have a, a valid closer. <clears throat> for the Mets. Mm-hmm. I got there, they were in the market for somebody who could throw it hard and, and also, um, you know, bear up under the pressure of, of being uh, closer, which was great for me because I got to pitch every day. You know, I got to pitch one or two innings several times a week. So that was a godsend for me to get a chance to, to get out on the mound more than once a week. And I found out my arm got stronger. I was able to locate the plate, and I still had this fastball that nobody could touch. Wow. And I had a little bit of a curveball, wrinkle kind of thing that spun a little bit, but it wasn't that good. But my fastball was what had a lot of life to it. Mm-hmm. So the years I pitched in New York, I pitched with that fastball, and it was just something that I can't tell you why or how, but it was there. It was there every single day that I showed up to the ballpark. <clears throat> I, I made sure it was still there. And it was like having five years of one-day contracts because <laughs> I was the ballpark every, every day not knowing <clears throat> if I could find that fastball again. So it was, for me, it was a great place to, to grow up. And, and to find myself and to to have the responsibility for, for pitching at the end of the game for Matlack and Kuzman and Tom Seaver, uh, Craig Swan, um, you know, the guys are real good pitchers. I got the responsibility of going in and, and saving those games. And I love, I just, it was the right thing for me. Fastball stayed with me for for a lot longer than I thought. Um, it was it was just a you know a meeting of two universes for me, hmm. and it was it was very very different than being a starting pitcher. It was what I should have been all the way along. I should have been that closer. I should have been able to pitch more often. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you about um, what it was like to come in to save games for the likes of Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and John Matlack. There had to be a lot of adrenaline flowing, especially when you'd come in for a guy like Seaver, who was, you know, one of the greats of all time to to preserve a win for him. What was that like? It was a privilege. Uh, Tom and I became good friends. Um, he was my ride to the ballpark, uh, a lot of the home games. Um, I got to know him real well. Um, I got to understand as much as I could how he prepared for the game. 
mm-hmm. and, and how meticulous he was in in everything he did, but certainly his his preparation for himself, for what he did, and, and kind of the calisthenics and the extra work and his conditioning and his strengthening and and then how we prepared the game, um, how he went out to the mound. <clears throat> he was he was a pitcher extraordinaire. He was an artist in a baseball uniform. Um, the best pitcher I have ever seen or ever saw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He knew how to control himself and control the plate and control the game. <clears throat> and so I'm not saying I was in that same category. But what I will say is he expected no less from from anybody that came in for him mm-hmm. to, to close the game, to be his closer. He expected that you prepared and that you did the work and, and, and you prepared the game and did the extra work and did the extra mileage and the extra sit-ups that mm-hmm. he was doing. <clears throat> so I started to expect that of myself and what I found is that I had the ability to um, prepare the game before I went out to play and then visualize what I was doing before I was going to go out and, and have to do it and just like he did he would make mental images mental notes of how he was going to pitch how he was going to look and how it was going to feel and sound. He made, <clears throat> he made all those mental images in his mind. And so I started to do it too, um, because we would talk about it. And as you know, from reading the book, I talk about the, the discipline and the strength that you can get if you have I'm going to say a positive mental image, but it's more than just a positive mental image. It's, it's, it's a mental image of you being successful long before you're actually successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring that out a couple of times. They say that Jack Nicklaus never hit a golf ball that he hadn't already pictured in his mind that he was going to hit. Yep. I don't think Tom Seaver ever threw a pitch that he hadn't planned to throw in his mind before he ever threw it. Hmm. And I I certainly wasn't in the same category, but I really tried to prepare the game before I went out there. I tried to think about it. I tried to um, not only think about the good, but the bad. You know, you asked me what it was like to go out there. It was like standing next to the ocean. You know, the roar and and the the power (laughs) of it was very intense. Huh. And when you got out there, you had to manage yourself. You couldn't let that overcome you. You couldn't you couldn't think of yourself as not belonging. You had to be able to see yourself and prepare yourself before you ever got there so that when you got there you could you could do what you have to do with without without straining. It had to be fluid and, and and, and all of the things that come along with being able to relax. <clears throat> if I try so hard that all my muscles get tight, mm-hmm. the fence doesn't do what it's supposed to do. 
you've got to be relaxed and loose and it's it's got to be it's got to be really you that's out there it can't be someone else so gotcha. what i prepared, tried to do is i tried to be myself and i tried to put in place uh, a way of playing that that helped me be the best i could be every single day i went out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to really uh, dive into your career, but before we do, there's one other guy I want to ask you about. Your first manager on the Mets, Yogi Berra. Heck, the first time you pitched for the Mets, he didn't even know your name. He kept calling you Chip or something like that. What was Yogi Berra like? What was... What was it like playing for one of the greatest ball players of all time? Yeah, Yogi, you know, uh, Yogi was a, a personal boyhood idol of mine. Um, I liked him because he would swing at everything that you threw. He came his way, get hits on balls that bounced, and kind of made up as much as mine. <laughs> um, he was certainly misplaced as a manager. Um, yeah, and I think he was kind of the lightning rod for a lot of things in New York that some were good and some were bad. But, um, you know, as a manager, I think he he probably would, would have made a better coach rather than a manager. Hmm. Um, I didn't get to know him very, very long. He was only there for a day or two when I came up for the Mets. Um, but as, as I said in the book, I was – I was awed the first day I got to Shea Stadium <clears throat> to get a chance to meet him. Yeah. So it was not like I met him in the locker room because I got there in the middle of the game and I went and got dressed and got to the bullpen and had to immediately warm up and I got in the game. So this Yogi Berra is standing on a mound <clears throat> and I, I wanted to shake his hand because, <laughs> you know, but I thought that would look a little weird. So I didn't shake him. But uh, I, I it was a privilege to get a chance to even play one game behind him. Uh, McMillan, Roy McMillan took over for him. And then, as you know, Joe Torrey yep. was the player coach for a year and then took over as manager with the Nets. And I love Joe Torrey and, and everything about him. But, you know, I never got to, to really meet or play for Yogi, you know, as long as I would have liked to. But uh, mm-hmm. it was a privilege to be there even a game or two. Sure. All right. Uh, one last thing before we, we, we get to your career, and we're going to go way back to the beginning here, Skip. When you were young, you sustained a very serious injury. In fact, there is a possibility that you could have lost an arm. But the doctors not only saved your arm, they, they might have actually saved your life from the way you wrote about it. First, tell us about that injury. And then second, what I thought was really interesting was how that injury brought you closer to your father and the role it played in developing your passion for the game of baseball. Yeah, I was unfortunate. It was... Um... I think seven or, or seven and a half. And I went over to one of my uh, relatives' house and, and I I fell through a, a porch window and, uh, you know, trying to balance myself. And I, my arm went through a single plate window and it came down on top of me. And um, it did some serious damage to the, the 
elbow, inside of the elbow, my right arm. It didn't touch anything else, but it, it certainly did some some serious damage to that. And the, the doctor put it back together. I mean, they didn't, this was back in the 50s, 56 or back in there. They didn't have the medical technology they had, so nerve bundles and all that stuff. I mean, they were just trying to <clears throat> make sure the arm was one piece. And they, they sewed it together. They told my father that I'd probably have limited use and, of the arm and it would probably look normal, but <clears throat> certainly wouldn't be able to, to do much in sports. And my my dad didn't didn't take take uh, take that to heart. And what he thought is he would buy uh, two gloves and a baseball, and at Sears, and he brought them home after the bandages came off my arm. <clears throat> we started to play catch, and it was just like soft toss, and that hurt a little bit. And, um, it was good time for he and I. After work, I'd wait for him to come home and we'd play catch and on the front lawn. And then um, I liked the feeling of being able to throw this baseball back and forth. And my arm started to feel a little better. And, and so all winter long, I you know got cold and we lived outside of Boston. And so I threw like tennis balls and stuff, still doing therapy, you know, down in the basement against the cinder block basement painted a strike zone on the cinder block and threw socks and tennis balls and everything else I could at that square on, on the cinder block. And, <clears throat> and here comes the next year. Um, I'm still playing catch with dad. I'm getting better. It's starting to throw with the ball pretty good. And we kind of stretched out a little bit. So <clears throat> the second year playing catch with him was good. You know, he started to squat a little bit like a catcher might. And, uh, I was throwing better, and the arm was feeling better. All winter long for the second year, I threw in the basement again. Threw baseballs now in the basement, soccer, and uh, in, in, in tennis balls, and anything, everything I could. Mm -hmm. If you do anything, you know, like that, as a young boy, it becomes, you could become focused on it. It becomes something that you're, you're, it's therapy for you. Um, throwing that baseball back and forth um, was the way to, to heal my arm, but it was, I was growing up with something on my mind, if you can picture this. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so when I went out for Little League, Next year, it would have been the third year after my injury. I didn't know whether I was better or worse than other kids on the team. How do you, you know, how can you judge that? Mm -hmm. But I will tell you this, I was a lot better. Hmm. And Interesting. The arm had strengthened. The, the pitching and the throwing had, had really affected my velocity and, and everything. It was quite, I was quite much better than all the other little boys hmm. and you know my father started to coach the team and i made the all-star team as a nine-year-old and you know so little league stretched out into the uh, pony league and then into high school and stuff like that and it just seemed like my arm was getting stronger and, and, and better you know every single year that 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 i was 
that I played and I pitched. So, yeah, I, I think the doctor saved my life and saved my arm. My father certainly was very, very instrumental and, and played a big part in, in being available and, and, and staying positive and staying committed, you know, all those years. Mm-hmm. It was good for the both of us. Yeah, it's great how sports can bring a, a father and son together. I know that um, my dad and I enjoyed many a day in the ballpark, at the, uh, at the hockey game, the basketball game, uh, watching the Giants in football. It's, it's great the way sports can, can bring a father and son and a, fa- a father and daughter, bring a whole family together. It's really a wonderful thing, and it sounds like it was a really good thing. You guys made a great thing out of what could have been an awful tragedy. Yeah, it was. It, I think, you know, physically, obviously, it was good. And and I grew up very compulsive about being a, a, a better baseball player. It was the thing that I was really committed to. But also, on another level, um, Little League and, and baseball in general gave my father and I, a language to speak, a, a way to talk to each other about things that really was hard to talk about. Mm-hmm. If you were scared or if you were timid or if you weren't certain about certain things, baseball gave you a language to discuss those things and, and a way to overcome them and a way to talk about things that there were things that a father and a son should talk about baseball really gave us the way to discuss things in, in, a, in a manner so that um, we became very close. And of course, he was very proud, but it, it gave us, um, you know, a way of discussing things that we might never had. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the other things about that is, look, I'm from the Northeast. I grew up in New York, Westchester County, um, grew up loving the Mets. And I also know that there aren't too many players that make it to the majors from that area of the country. But not only are you from the Northeast, Massachusetts, you caught the eyes of scouts beginning with your sophomore year of high school. So I'm going to mention an event or a name, and I want you to tell us about it. And let's start with the polo grounds in New York and that home run you hit. Yeah. Well, that was a long time ago. Um, I was, I think I was 14 or 15. Um, I went out for the uh, U.S. All-Star team, which was a stretch uh, by anybody's standards. Um, They had local tryouts in the, the park league system around Boston. And they had, you know, tryouts for kids that come in, they'd run and play a game. So lo and behold, as a, I think it was a junior, maybe it was sophomore summer, um, I, I make it to, to Fenway Park to play an exhibition game with the U.S. All-Star team. And, and they're going to pick a team from all the kids that's played in this game. They're going to pick a team. And that team is going to go to New York and play in the Polo Grounds against the New York All-Star team. They called it the U.S. All-Star team. 
It was the Wreck in America, the RAA All-Star Team, I think was the real name of it. Mm-hmm. Well, we were the U.S. All-Star Team going down to New York to play the New York All-Star Team. Very, you know, I'm, my chest is pumping out of my uniform. I'm so proud <laughs> to get a chance to do this. And I was young and <clears throat> I didn't shave. And it was, it was just, you know, it was one of those things that I got a chance to play and at the right time at the right place uh I got a chance to to be put in the game. When when I got there there was a kid that was playing third base from Connecticut. I think it was from Connecticut. He got sick and he had flu or something. <clears throat> he didn't he couldn't play. But I was the alternate to start at third base, you know, as a a 15-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, shouldn't be starting a U.S. All-Star team. But I did. And uh, so now, uh, obviously, I got a chance to hit, too. And big, lanky left-hander from the Bronx. I don't remember who his name was, but he was slated to go pro and high school player. And I got up, and he lets loose of this slow, rolling curveball that bounces in, in front of home plate. <laughs> I took it for a ball. So you and I all know what's coming next. He's going to throw a fastball. Sure. And I, I could hit those fastballs. So I was a little late on it because he was faster than I thought. But I hit it down the right field line and it hit the foul pole in, in, in pole grounds. <laughs> And damn thing hit the foul pole, and I got a home run. And <laughs> I, I wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. And you could you could hear the scouts in the stands turning the books that they had in front of them, trying to figure out who the hell was that. You know who who was that that just hit that? <laughs> and I ended up getting another hit and stole the base and. Uh, after the game was over, um, you know, we got my father and I got in the car and came home. And uh, we found out the next day that I had made runner-up MVP for the game. Wow. I wasn't even there. I would I had gone home. It was a good thing I wasn't MVP because I wouldn't I wouldn't have been there to get to <laughs> but what it did is it was lucky. And it gave the scouts they they a chance to find me. Now I went to an all boys Catholic high school, <clears throat> so that was not the place you would normally look for for a, a major league player. And as luck would have it, they they started to come in my junior year. I played really good my junior year. I had an outstanding senior year, but it was because um, the scouts had found me and, and they were in, in attendance and, and they were, you know, they go to all the games. One scout in particular, you may know, his name was Bill Enos. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill, Bill was a legend. He used to scout the Cape League, uh, smoke a big cigar, chew tobacco, spit all over everything in front of him. <laughs> uh, Bill was famous for saying it. He scouted places that stamps don't go. <laughs> and uh, he found me. He found me 
you know, a little Catholic school in Boston, and he liked me, and and they they brought in other people to look to verify what he was looking at, and as it turns out, I I signed. Yeah, right tell us, yeah, tell us about that day. Now, don't tell me about the contract because I want to ask you about that separately. But tell me about that day. The Polo Grounds leads to people, re- to scouts, baseball scouts, recognizing you. And then you are discovered. And there are several teams that have showed interest in Skip Lockwood. What was that day like when you stayed home and the scouts started to come to your house to to make you an offer to play Major League Baseball. I mean, I can't imagine how that feels and the excitement of of a day like that. Yeah. Well, again, it was a long time ago. Uh, I was a pretty cocky youngster at that point in time. I had won MVP in a couple of different leagues and um, I, I knew I wanted to play and scouts, we had, had whispered to my coach, Ronnie Perry from Holy Cross, famous coach, uh, basketball, baseball player, mm-hmm. coach at school, um, had been talking to the scouts and, and he told me that, that they were interested in, of course he didn't, nobody knew what kind of money was involved, but. I knew that the scouts were interested. And the day that came to sign, this was a year before the draft. So there was no, the draft only gave you one team to sign with. Uh The year before the draft in 1964, when I signed, you you could talk to as many teams as you want. So we scheduled different teams to come in and talk to me. and 45-minute intervals. We started about 9 o'clock in the morning, and we thought that there'd be five teams, including the Red Sox, that would that would come in and, and want to sign me. So, yeah, I mean, this is a well, wonderful thing. I didn't sleep all night, and you get up, and, and this is hopefully the day that you're going to turn pro. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister comes down with the measles. <laughs> so now I'm going to sign and, and my sister's got the measles <clears throat> so people can't come in the house I mean if you haven't had the measles you wouldn't want to be in the house um, <laughs> so we're actually funny as it may sound we're sitting on the front stoop on the on the front porch on the, the three step walk up into the house where the mailbox is, talking to guys in blue suits <laughs> that they want to sign me. And the car, so one guy came and and he he overstayed his, his welcome for about 15 minutes. So the second car drove up and, and we're sitting on the front steps talking to this guy. And, and so then the second car emptied out and Scout came in and we talked to him, and, and again we're still sitting on the front steps. <laughs> and the third car would come, and the second guy hadn't left, and we're still on the front steps. Um, and it was it was so unusual 
to if you want me to go into the numbers I can but Yeah, the- I mean here let's let's do it. I mean you were being offered basically 35k by some of these teams and finally the scout for the Kansas City A's comes along and he writes 35k on the line in your contract but you changed it. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, um, again, I was pretty cocky kid at this point in time. Um, the uh, um, I got the guy's name right now. The, the general manager from the A's organization uh, had flown in from Kansas City, dark blue suit, had been sitting in the car a while waiting for the steps to clear. And uh, he he said, you know, we would like to sign you. And I said, well, to, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd really like to sign. You're the, the fifth and the, and the last team to come in and, and talk to me. Well, he said, great. He said, uh, I, he said, here, he said, what have you been offered? He said, I'll give you whatever you can offer. And I said, um, I'm going to offer $35,000. Uh, is okay. He said, I'll, his, and he wrote $35,000 in the, uh, in the place in the contract. There's only two, two holes, two empty spaces in the contract. One was the name and one was the amount of money. Everything else was the same contract. Everybody signed. There was no differences in it. Yeah. I think his so, name was Pat Friday. Pat Friday. Right. So Bill Enos, the, the A scout, and Pat Friday were there, was sitting on the front steps. And my father gets up, because he had been sitting on the front steps, too. And he says, Skip, he says, this is a decision that you have to make by yourself. I will not influence it. If you want to play baseball, you, you have my blessing. If you want to go to college and play baseball after college, you also have my blessing in doing that. It's your decision to make. He got up and left, went inside. <laughs> I'm looking <clears throat> looking at Pat Friday, and uh, I said, okay, I, I'd really like to sign us. Um, do you have uh, a pen? I asked him. And he said, absolutely. You know, and so he's in his pocket. He's getting, getting ink pen out. And I said, Mr. Friday, I said, there's a, a couple things wrong with this contract I'd like to fix. And I said, I'd like one more thing, please. So he said, you know, he's kind of curious now about what I'm talking about. And I said, the name that you have on here is Skip Lockwood. That's not my name. It's Claude. So I crossed out Skip and I wrote my name in there. Mm -hmm. And I said, the one more thing I like, sir, is, and I took his pen and I made a one. It was a true story. I made a one in front of the (laughs) 35,000. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do. He didn't. He, uh, I don't know if he was unprepared or unauthorized, or maybe he was playing a role in, in, in being shocked. I don't. But he was legitimately taken back. And he didn't know what to say. And and I said to him, you know. I, I want to get $135,000. And he said, well, nobody else has ever signed for that much. You know that, don't you? And I said, I don't care about that. I said, this is, this is my contract. 
That's what it takes to, to put me in uniform. And he said, well, I'm not authorized to, to, to give that kind of money out. I said, well, how do you get authorized? He said, I got to talk to Charlie. And I said, all right. So I said, you've got to come into the house and make a phone call. Come on in. So he kind of took his handkerchief out of his, his pocket and put it around his, his mouth because he didn't want the measles. <laughs> and he came in and made a call to Charlie Finley. And they talked for a little bit. And he said, Charlie wants to talk to you. I'd never met Charlie Finley. <clears throat> he is a southern draw I heard on the phone, raspy voice. Mm-hmm. Is, is your name Skip? I said, it is. He says, why the hell should I give you $135,000? I said, Charlie, you want to win a World Series? I will make you a winner. That's why you <laughs> those are Those are exactly what I said to him. And he said, put Friday back on the phone. And I got it. I signed that contract. Wow. And seven days later, you're in Kansas City or Cleveland or someplace with the A's taking batting practice. Yeah. Well, that's the, the, the batting. So once I got signed, I, I joined the team, uh, the Kansas City team. They were on a road. <clears throat> I wasn't on the roster, of course. I was just like a cameo. Mm-hmm. They wanted the you know, off big bonus baby, and they wanted the press to meet me. And they wanted me to take batting practice and then sit in the stands and watch the games. So I, I that so I did. I think I was there for a week, traveling with the team, and I think they were Detroit, Cleveland, or someplace like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So got to travel and, and, and you know I got to see the big leaguers because you know bonus babies that in those days were were being discouraged. I mean the owners didn't want them and they were putting rules in place for the following year that if you had a bonus baby, that's what they called us. Mm-hmm. You had them on a roster, otherwise you you couldn't you couldn't keep them. You went into a pool. So as it turns out, um, you know I wasn't. Very, very well liked, even though I thought I was going to be okay. Guys in the big leagues weren't weren't too happy that I was there. And uh, the first, I got a uniform when I first got to Cleveland, I think it was. Didn't fit too good. uh, I got hit batting practice with one of the bats. I didn't have my own bat, so I had some kind of a clunker old bat that I got out of the rack. Mm. And I got up to take batting practice, you know, before the game, and the batting practice pitcher, who was also the um, coach, started to hit me with with the balls. You know, <laughs> instead of letting me get, he was hitting me. <laughs> yeah. and I the, you know, well, I didn't know. I'm 17 years old. I'm trying to show off my power and hit a couple out of the ballpark. And I'm on my back. I'm in the dirt. I got hit in the back with one of them. Oh man! I got so I yelled out something to him. I forget exactly what I said to him. It wasn't nice. <laughs> and uh, after the batting practice was over, I went back in to change, and this guy came in, and, and we went at it. In the not only been in uniform for an hour, <laughs> only been a, a day, and, and this guy and I, I, I in a, not a fist fight, but a pushing match, and everything. In the, 
the class. <laughs> it, uh, it, uh, it was was not a transition that you'd want for your son, I don't think. Yeah, it, uh, no, I, I not not at all. Well, quite the indoctrination into the major leagues. I I, I can only imagine. You must have said you you must have felt a sense of relief when you were sent down to Burlington for Class A baseball. Um, you know, Skip, your book Inside Pitch. We're going to go back and forth a little bit here. It's a, like I said, it's a really enjoyable book to read, and I encourage everyone listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes to grab a copy of the book. It really is. It's a fun book. You have so many stories, and I love, no pun intended, your insight into many of the game's intricacies as well. But I think a lot of people will also enjoy the many moments you discuss it they might have missed or might never know about because the event you discuss happened in the minors or away from the spotlight. And one of those events was your encounter with Max Packin, the clown prince of baseball, which in the end resulted with you getting your first ever credited stolen base in professional baseball. It came in a most unique way. Can you tell us about that? I'd be glad to. Um, so, it, first of all, thank you so much for saying kind of words about the book. Um, I wrote the book myself. Nobody helped me with it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I, I wanted to have fun with it. I, I thought people would enjoy a book that was written by by a player. I thought the authenticity was the thing that I was most interested in, I wanted to be authentic in my production and tell you stories that were real. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, as much as I could, take the reader out on the field with me. I wanted the reader to to be in the uniform with me and sweat it out with me and try to feel a little bit of, about what it was like to be a you know a player without a long term contract. You know, yep. Player who who was trying to make it, you know, in, in a very difficult game, you know, like one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke, I tried to write it in a first person so so that the reader could, could feel that for me. Um, going to the minor leagues, um, uh, it was a lot different than, than I expected. Um, Burlington, Iowa was the first place I played in the minor leagues. And this was a ball Midwest league, hotter than blue blazes. And it was a hot muggy summer. I joined the team, you know, mid mid season. One of the really most popular players on the team had to be released to make room for me. So that immediately didn't make me very popular. When, oh, I when guess not. I was joining, you know. Um, believe it or not, the team was was struggling to draw <clears throat> fans to the ballpark, and they decided that they could save money if they didn't have a bus. So what they did is they would lease three Chevy station wagons, 
and we used to we used to ride in the Chevy station wagons. And we also rode in a bus sometimes. If we win a couple of games, like a homestand, we'd actually get a bus. But if you lose, they had at least these Chevy station wagons. Oh, my God. So if you were a rookie, like I was, you got the back seat facing backwards. Oh. And if you were the losing pitcher in the second car, you got the back seat facing backwards. Oh. Then in the era, to lose the game, you got the third car facing backwards. Ugh. So, and we were we were traveling ten hours, twelve hours sometimes to get from one place to another. So, when I first got to the back seat, my first trip, I, I my back was to some guy who was sitting in the second seat, three across. I said to him. I said, what is this bucket for in the back of the seat back here? He said, <laughs> you'll get to know what that bucket's for pretty soon. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> I uh, I found out. Yeah. Not fun. And we, we played all across the Midwest, Burlington, Waterloo, Cedar Rapids, Quincy. All, all around the upper Midwest, I guess you would call it. And one day I got to the ballpark and they had, they had trying to, I think it was Decatur, Dubuque or someplace. They had sold out. They had a better than average crowd because the crown prince of baseball was coming to entertain the people. And he was going to be a coach for an inning and he's going to wear a uniform, uh, and he had a question mark for a number. His name was Max Packman, and he was famous, and he used to barnstorm around different games, and uh, he had like a, a routine that he would go through, and he'd make fun of, of the players and make fun of the coaches. and He, just made, he was a funny, comical guy. <clears throat> and so I, he got in, he was going to coach, I think, the third inning. And I was I was coming to bat in the third inning. And um, when I got up to bat, you know, he was scratching himself and, and plucking like a turkey and doing all kinds of weird things down the third base coaching box. And some of them were risque. And, uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I... All I wanted to do is, is not to make a, a fool of myself with this clown prince of baseball. So I got, I ended up getting a base hit. Got on first base and and uh, fastball, I ended up on second base. So he's delighted now that there's somebody on second base that he can coach mm -hmm. over on third base. And <clears throat> he calls timeout. Well, he, he nobody granted him any time out. He just starts walking out towards the shortstop area, and he motions to me to come over. <clears throat> so the shortstop, he steps back, and the third baseman, they're both in, in left field laughing at this guy's hilarious baggy pants and <clears throat> making all kinds of gestures and everything. 
So we're having a meeting, he and I, near shortstop. He's telling me all kinds of things and pointing to the sky and pointing to his crotch. And he's, you know, God. And he said, listen to me. He says, when we break up, he said, I'm going to go to second base. He said, you walk the third. Just where I was. <laughs> but I said, okay. So we break up. He goes to second base. I walk over to third. Step on the bag. And the umpire says, safe. <laughs> when I step on the bank. And uh, now there's an argument. So the <clears throat> shortstop now, now realized, third baseman realized that I was, you know, I had stolen third base walking. And, and the managers got into an argument. And umpires got into an argument. And <clears throat> Max was trying to worm his way underneath the argument to get into the middle of the argument. <laughs> but you got a stolen base out of it. I stole a base. My first stolen base was walking. Unbelievable. Hey, in your first attempt to make the majors, you only spent one year in the minors, and then you made the Kansas City Athletics out of your first spring training. The A's, again, a lot of stories in your book about Charlie Finley, who is the owner of the team. He ran a lot of promotions to help put fannies in the seats. But before we get to some of them, I'd like for you to tell us about your encounter with one of the greatest track athletes of all time, a guy who incidentally... I spoke about on Sports Forgotten Heroes just a few episodes ago during a show I did about Oscar Charleston. But you met this guy many years later after Oscar knew him in the outfield while you were uh, 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 doing uh, some running. Yeah, well, I've met a couple of people that were quite extraordinary. Um, the The A's were starving for for attendance. Um, Kansas City is a beautiful place. And this ballpark that was on the upper upper north side was just gorgeous. Every blade of grass was seemed like was cut with a razor blade, you know, it was just beautiful. And and we couldn't draw anybody to the ballpark. We had a terrible team. And, and one of the reasons was that the bonus protection rule had to keep all the rookies that had any promise that they signed with any amount of money on the team. So there was, I think there was six or seven of us that were on the team that really should have been in the minor league someplace playing. Mm-hmm. Catfish Hunter mm-hmm. was my root. You know, Jim Hunter. Yep. And, um, you've heard for North Carolina. Um, great, great pitcher. He was a legitimate major leaguer from the first day he stepped on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, Hall of Famer. And we, he, 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 had, oh, he, he died of Lou Gehrig's disease, I think, um, after he retired. Mm-hmm. Tragically. Um, you know, a couple of guys that I met, I met one guy one day. <clears throat> I walked into the ballpark and the name tag, my, my locker was way in the back by the, by the, bats where they used to keep all the bat uh, and the bare uniforms and stuff like that. My name had been moved out of the nameplate up there and was almost falling out. So I thought I had gotten sent to the minor leagues. It looked like they'd try to take my nameplate out and got stuck. Mm-hmm. And 
next to my nameplate, they had slid in another nameplate. So now there was two names in 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 the one locker in the back of the locker room. The guy's name that they put in over me was P A I G E. What a cool story you're about to tell us. So I never, I didn't know who this was. Uh, I was, I had dressed and I'd gone out on the field. We would had to have batting practice. And um, I had come back in and changed my uniform, put something dry on because it was 100 degrees in Kansas City. And this guy had come in and he looked like a, they had left a hanger in a suit of clothes. His skinny guy, um, beautiful black man came in with a hat and a suit on. And he, he comes all the way in. He's got a, a, a locker, uh, uh, like a suitcase with it. And he, he walks through and he comes back and he sits down next to me. And we shake hands at Satchel Page. He's going to pitch. And and to be honest with you, I didn't know who it was. <laughs> I I didn't know what he was going to do. I didn't know that he was going to pitch in the game. And they had Charlie Finley had released somebody and hired him back the next day so that Satchel could play a game. It was actually against the Red Sox, and he was going to pitch. Mm-hmm. And I guess I understood because all the all the press started to come over, and they were asking him. And of course, he's telling stories. And, uh, you know, everything was pretty much fabricated. He had come out of the Negro Leagues, and his rubber arm, long, tall, lanky guy, had pitched both ends of double headers and three, or, three or four times a week because you'd, you'd make a pretty good paycheck. They barged him around and make a couple hundred dollars a week. A pretty good gig. Sure. So his satchel page and I shared a locker. Wow. In in 1965. And uh I got to meet him and listen to some of the stories and it was just fascinating. And the one thing that he said to me, I didn't put this, I am I'm writing another book actually, but I didn't put this in the book, but you will you'll understand the importance of the words. <clears throat> He said to me, son, he said, don't ever let him take the uniform away from you. Mm. And mm. that made a big difference to me because from there on, I knew that I was playing um, an important game and that the uniform was was everything I had and meant an awful lot to him and it meant an awful lot to me. Um, Satchel Page was my locker mate. Wow. The that, guy you're talking about, yeah, was, I met in spring training. Um, Campanaris was third, was shortstop for the A's, and, and I was kind of sitting the bench third base, and, but I was pretty fast in my own right, and they were trying to teach Campanaris and me to how to, how to be faster runners and how to get a jump, and how to be quicker on our feet. It was in spring training, and I was um, working a little extra, doing some extra laps. Every, everybody had pretty much left the field, 
and uh, I was out there running. This guy in a jogging suit is, is running next to me every bit as fast as I'm running. He's running backwards, talking to me. <laughs> jogging with me. I'm doing wind, wind sprints, and, and I, I can hardly stay up with this guy. And, and he's talking to me about stuff and then would walk back and he'd talk to me about running and ask me questions about running. And then I'd start another sprint and he'd run backwards again, just step for step. I couldn't beat him. He was saying, ask me questions about, well, what do you think about when you're doing these sprints? Yeah, and the answer was, I'm not thinking about anything. <laughs> uh, trying to get a few extra sprints and, and um, you know, maybe try to get a beer after the after the thing. I was only 17 years old. Getting a beer at those was not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So we we talked a lot. I stayed out there listening to him. He took me into the infield. And we talked about how to run and and how to use your hands when you run and use your upper body and, and make your feet go like the ground's on fire and how to lead with one foot but step with the other and don't ever start your first step with your the foot that's closest to second base. Always start with the foot that's closest to first base and make that first explosive one, two steps and we practiced and we practiced just he and I out on the field. Mm-hmm. A few steps off our space. And <clears throat> so he says something to me. Yeah, I never really got to be a, a very good base stealer. I think Campaneris probably did. He, he had the the next day he met with Campy, but he really wasn't there just to coach me. He was there to coach the A's. And I just happened to be the one that was on the field. But he said, <clears throat> never run away from, always run towards. Hmm. He had learned that from his Olympic days. And so this is this guy was Jesse Owens. Wow. Special for spring training. And he had run sprints with me, and we ran leadoff sprints from, from first base, and it was just he and I. So as a as a very young kid, I had Satchel and Jesse had made profound influences mm-hmm. on me. Mm-hmm. And by the yeah, to meet you guys ordinarily, you know, he's an Olympic athlete that stood up to, you know, whole nations by himself, teaching me how to take a lead from first base. Sure. Wow. What an experience. Quite amazing. You know, Skip, you never pitched for Kansas City. First, the A's sent you to Houston, I think, but then the Astros sent you back, and then the A's traded you to Seattle, who later became the Milwaukee Brewers. And, you know, most baseball fans remember that there was another team in Milwaukee before the Brewers came along, and that was the Milwaukee Braves, now the Atlanta Braves. Well, when the Brewers were were first there, they tried to do whatever they could to get the fans excited, so they did stage an exhibition between the Brewers and the Braves. And the Brewers, 
they didn't want to use any of their pitchers that were currently on the roster. So you were called up from the minors to pitch in that game. And that wound up being one of the biggest breaks of your career. Would you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the, uh, the ball club. So Milwaukee broke camp. I did, I did not make the, the Milwaukee team. Um, I got sent to the, the minor leagues. And the, the team that the Milwaukee uh, Brewers became was was really a leftover pilots team, which had been formed by by a draft. If you remember, everybody was allowed to keep certain players, and mm-hmm. the players they didn't keep were draftable. So the Seattle Pilots drafted, you know, forty guys off different teams and tried to make a ball club out of it. They were terrible, and now Milwaukee inherits that whole gang of players, and it was hard to even find an all-star to go to the all-star game. We didn't have anybody hitting 200. We didn't have any pitchers that were doing any good at all. Um, you're like a revolving door in the minor leagues, guys coming up and guys going down. And, uh, by the time um, June came along, um, they had gone through, I bet, 12, 15 pitchers already. Mm. And, and that the pitching pitching staff was exhausted. I was pitching, I think I was pitching in Portland, uh, Oregon, AAA. I started off pretty good. I had a couple wins under my belt in Portland. I, I, they called me up, and they were going to play an exhibition game against the Braves. And they sure didn't want to burn another pitcher or two, mm-hmm. you know, yes, with an exhibition game. And and so I, they sent me a round-trip ticket. I was supposed to come in and pitch it go back to Portland, you know, the following day. And um, so I didn't think much of it uh, coming up to pitch an exhibition game. You know, it's, I'm not on the roster really. And I, I got to uh, Milwaukee. They're, they're playing the Braves. I didn't know they were playing the Braves. <laughs> they're playing against Cepeda and Aaron. You know, these were boyhood idols of mine. Now, I didn't know they were playing against the, the Atlanta ball club. <laughs> I didn't know that until I got to the stadium. And and so now, you know, I, I get in the uniform, I warm up, and, and here comes the hardest-hitting team you've ever seen in your life. Hank Aaron is at home plate. <laughs> Spain is coming up. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, for me, it was, you know, I was – Shaking in my boots. <laughs> uh, but as luck would have it, I, I pitched a good game. Uh, I don't think I pitched a complete game, but I pitched a good game, and I actually hit a home run during the game. Wow. The fifth inning. And so as luck would have it, uh, the team kept me. And so I, I stayed with the team, 1970. Uh, but you've got to understand that I was supposed to come up and then go back. So I didn't have clothes. My car was still in Portland. Um, I didn't have a hotel reservation. I didn't, I didn't have anything. I was I was there for one day and supposed to go back. Well, so some, was, yeah, I guess, I guess sometimes uh, not knowing what kind of pressure you're really going to be in 
helps you be a little bit looser too. Yeah, I look back at my career, Warren, I think, you know, there was a number of times in my career that things just sort of happened. You know, I don't know why they happened. Mm -hmm. It probably never would happen again, but they did. And I was lucky in in many situations, but I was also, I don't know how you'd say it, I was determined. Mm I was lucky as a kid, but I was very determined. Mm -hmm. And it's like writing this book. I started writing this book, and I was determined that I was going to write every word and that I was going to finish it, mm-hmm. and I did. Yep, you sure did. And again, it's a great book. Now, Skip, over the course of your career, you played for the Kansas City A's, the Seattle Pilots, the Milwaukee Brewers. You spent a spring training with the New York Yankees, who, by the way, released you despite you having an outstanding spring. Then you went on to the Mets and the Red Sox. And yet there was one character who you refer to throughout the book, and he shows up a few times during your career, a guy who we've mentioned before, Charlie Finley. He helped you a lot. Tell us about the man and why you felt comfortable dealing with him even when you weren't playing for him. Well, it would, you might have gone back to that first phone call, you know, when I first signed and talked to Charlie on the phone. Um, he was a man of very few words, very colorful character. If you remember him, he always had a a, a hat on. Mm-hmm. And he, he was like Bill Veck. He was a salesman. He was an insurance guy. Tried to change the color of the baseballs, tried to move the fences in and out. Um, had Miss Universe for a bat girl. <laughs> he he uh, he was a guy that was really before his time. He he was a colorful guy. He had he Charlie Finley the Mule used to travel with the team. Charlie O they called the Mule. He had sheep in the outfield. Uh, he had Farmer's Day in in in. Kansas City, that was hilarious. Yeah, it was that, like he had a zoo there. He had a, you know, a menagerie of animals. and He tried everything he could think of to, to make the game a better game, more colorful, get more people coming to the game. <clears throat> a lot like Bill Veck in many ways. Um, I, had, I had gotten released by the Yankees. And to your point, I, I had a pretty good spring, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. they. I was in the hotel, and I didn't. I got I, the, the team had um, called me, and they said, we're going to release you. We need to have you come in and sign the paperwork hmm. next, tomorrow, the next day. Hmm. So I said, you know, okay. I, I I was despondent. I didn't know I didn't know what to do or say. So I had one good friend that I knew I thought would return my phone call. So I called Charlie, Charlie Finley, and and he got right back to me. And he said um, they're going to release you. I said yes, sir, they are. He said he said why? I said I don't know. I pitched pretty good. Dick Tidrow. Is going to get the 10th position or pitcher, and they're going to send me 
out for options. Mm-hmm. Okay, he said, okay. He said, don't do that. He said, I'm, he said, I want you. He said, where are you now? So I told him I was at the hotel. He said, okay. He said, you go and you get yourself, leave your luggage and everything there. I'll have it sent to you. He said, I want you to get on a plane and I want you to fly to Phoenix. He said, I'll make reservations at a Holiday Inn under the name Jones. And he said, you're to fly to Phoenix and don't tell anybody. He said, I will call you. As my word is of honor, I will call you in a week. Mm-hmm. And what's going on? So I ask you, Warren, would you do it or would you would you not do it? Uh, of course. I mean, this guy has taken care of me, and um, uh, I did. Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah, you have to. I, playing, I flew. Um, I got to the hotel. I had reservation. My name, <clears throat> and he called me, and he said, "Okay, okay. What happened is, he said they." They didn't get the right paperwork signed. I was able to, to get you for a, an option price that they had to pay me to, to get your contract. He said, I didn't get very much money for you, but he said, I did. I do appreciate you doing what I told you to do. And he got and so to I, stick it to the Yankees, too. Yeah. He <laughs> said, if you pitch well, he said, you have my word. I'll put you back in the big leagues again. So I said, okay, um, what, what are you going to do with me now? He said, I'm going to put you in a Montreal affiliate in Tucson with the Tucson Toros. And he said, if you pitch good, he said, I'm going to put you in the National League because he said, I don't want you back in the American League if you're going to hurt me. But he said, you have my word that I'll, I'll put you back in the big leagues. So as it turns out, I met Leah Mazzoni. Got a new fastball, uh, leading the league in strikeouts, even out of the bullpen. Um, I really was putting together some good numbers. Yep. And uh, I, just a true story, I had uh, celebrated a little bit too hard after I got my 16th save with Tucson. And I happened to be in Phoenix at the time and with my wife. And, and the phone rang early in the morning. Too early for me because I had had a beer or two. <laughs> uh, it's Charlie Finley. He's on the phone. I couldn't. I couldn't come to the phone. I was in the bathroom. <laughs> Charlie, Charlie, and my wife are talking, and and he's telling her that there's three teams that are interested in me: the Phillies and the Mets, and. Um, uh, what was the other team? Atlanta, I guess. And he said, uh, which team would you like to go to? So my wife says to him, I'm still in the bathroom. Uh, New York would be great. So he's okay. He said, I'm going to sell you to the Mets. He says, it's good for me because I'm going to make a little bit more money off of you. Good for the Mets because they're going to get a guy that fill in for Doug McCraw. Do their clothes so she said, okay. She said, well, what are we going to be paid? <clears throat> you got to remind yourself now, I'm still in the bathroom. I haven't got out of the bathroom yet. So he said, well, I don't know what they're going to pay you, but it's probably going to be the minimum. But he says, you can negotiate with them with a contract that if you do certain things, they'll give you more money. Mm-hmm. So, she, so she was the one that negotiated with Charlie Finley. 
pick New York Mets as the team to go to and actually negotiated a stepping stepping stone kind of contract where I, wow. I got a little money extra if I pitched good. Wow. There you go. Well, well, Skip, you know, I got to ask you this. Pranks have always been a part of sports, and baseball is famous for so many of them. And you were the victim of a prank before you even met your real teammates when the Mets first acquired you. Tell us what happened, because it's a great story. All right. I'd like this to probably be the last one. Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, We can maybe talk another time and, and, and... Do some more. Sure, I'd love to, but you got to uh, tell this story because it's great. So I got I got to the Mets in the middle of a doubleheader. I already told you I'd never met Yogi in the Bear before. I didn't know anybody in the National League. I'd, I'd really never been to Shea Stadium, New York. I didn't know they were playing the Expos. Uh, I didn't know any of the Expos. And and I had read about Buddy Harrelson and Crane Pool and, and uh, Seaver and these guys in newspaper, but I face to face I didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. I got to the the ballpark in the middle of the first game, and uh, I was trying to get dressed in a hurry. The clubhouse guy <laughs> was was seen to be really trying to get me dressed and, and, and get me to the bullpen as fast as he could. Because you know, I could tell by the, by the radio and television that the bullpen was having trouble and they needed some help. But this guy is really rushing me, trying to get me dressed. So I got all dressed and he said, here, put this on. He gave me a, a blue jacket to put on. And... Um, I was it's pretty warm, but I, he said, put this on. It'd be better than carrying it. Mm. I said, okay. So I put it on. So he said, wait a minute. He said, I'm, I'm going to give you a ride out of the bullpen because he said, underneath Shea Stadium, there's a labyrinth of interconnecting tunnels mm-hmm. and everything. He said, you'll probably get lost. So he said, get in, get in. He says, I'll take you to the bullpen. So he did. We got in the car. We got out of the bullpen. And like I said, I I – I didn't know any of the guys, and and I I didn't even know we were playing Expos. I didn't know what team. (laughs) So I I got out of the cart and get out to the bullpen. I started to shake hands with with the guys in the bullpen and meet the coach, and I didn't know his name or anything. Meet some of the other guys, and, and they are laughing. And so I didn't know whether... They're laughing at me. I, I couldn't figure out what they're laughing at. So all of a sudden, the bullpen coach says, you're a stupid kid, man. He says, you're in the wrong damn bullpen. <laughs> the exposed bullpen. You belong properly pointed out there. You're on the other team, stupid. Now, he didn't say it when, in those words. <laughs> so now Herbie's still in the cart. Now Herbie's is peeing his pants. He's laughing so hard. <laughs> he finally takes me down. So he gets me in the cart. And and I don't know what to say or do. I I made you made a fool of me. <laughs> and and I get all the way down to 
the Mets, the real Mets bullpen. I think it's the real Mets bullpen. I can't. <laughs> there could be somewhere out. I didn't know where I was. <clears throat> and and Joe Pignatano, as the bullpen coach for the Mets, has got the the phone in his hand. The true story. <clears throat> and and <clears throat> he's saying, he's he's just getting here. Yeah, he's here now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Okay. So he signals to me, he says, you start to work. <laughs> so I don't, I, this could be another prank for all I know. You know, I don't, I didn't know how far these pranks go. And so I, I didn't, I was reluctant to get, to get to warm up because I, God knows what's going to happen to me. <laughs> and so I, I do, I, I warm up and I start to warm up and and I step and I'm looking for a rosin bag on one of the two warm-up mounts. And and Pignatano says, look out. <clears throat> and I almost step on a zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> so he's thrown a garden out in the back of the of the bullpen. And one of the zucchinis had it was a big zucchini, had fallen out and was pretty close <clears throat> to the mound that I was loosening up on. So, Warren, I can't tell you. So I was 10 minutes before I was in the wrong bullpen. <laughs> now I think I'm in the right bullpen, and they're going to put me in the damn game. <laughs> and, and I, I got I to gotta step over a zucchini to get loose. <laughs> um, oh, awesome. I finally got the game. Yogi, Yogi didn't know my name. so. When I got to the mound, I finally got to the mound. The first thing he says to me, he says, what's your name? <laughs> yeah. I said, my name is Skip. And he wasn't paying much attention. I don't know. <laughs> and he, he said, okay, Chip. <laughs> Listen. And so he, he you know, told me that they weren't going to bunt. And, and then he gets back to the dugout, and he's yelling, come on, Chip. Throw strikes. Come on, Chip. And he's... So I'm going to tell you that this was a half an hour from my life that it, it, it was um, a, a very interesting half an hour of my life going for the wrong bullpen, straddling a zucchini, and having the manager in the ball game not know your name. What a way to make your debut for the New York so, Mets. It was awesome. Debut in, for the New York Mets. Skip, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Hero. Again, your book, Insight Pitch, was terrific. You say you're writing another book. I hope you'll give me an opportunity to talk to you about that book. You know, the name of this podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I got to tell you, when I was 12 years old, I was a huge New York Mets fan, and you, sir, were one of my heroes, and I can't thank you enough for joining me on my podcast. Warren, it's my pleasure. Who enjoyed it. Thank you very much. There is so much more I wanted to talk about with Skip, but I couldn't keep him on the phone any longer than I did. Heck, we really never got to dive into the virtual zoo Charlie Finley had at the stadium in Kansas City. 
We didn't talk about the mechanics of going from position player to pitcher, his detour into the Army, or the first time he ever took the mound in a big league ballpark. And we never got to talk about the thrill of playing for the team he grew up a fan of, the Boston Red Sox. But you can check it all out in his book, Insight Pitch. And again, I'd like to thank the folks at Sports Publishing for sending me a copy and putting me in touch with Skip. For his career, Skip was 57-97. and 97. He started 106 games and recorded 68 saves. His ERA was 3.53, but it was his time as a closer for the Mets where he enjoyed his best days, and I'd like to thank Skip for spending so much time with us. Maybe I can get him back on the show down the road for a little more. Next time, with the NFL draft in the news, I'm going to take a little detour and talk some football about a team that played in Baltimore for a very short period of time, but certainly made its mark in a league that still exists today, the Baltimore Stallions of the Canadian Football League. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.